This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. In the novel Complicity, Ian Banks writes, The point is, there is no feasible excuse for what we have made of ourselves. We've chosen to put profits before people, money before morality, dividends before decency, fanaticism before fairness, and our own trivial comforts before the unspeakable agonies of others. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company. Is there anybody quite like Ian Banks? And what was it about his spirit and his voice that made him so attractive to the male reader? On this week's show, Professor Nicholas Daly from the School of English Drama and Film at University College Dublin and British science fiction critic and author Paul Kincaid discuss the seductive charms of a classic Banks read. And later we'll be joined by one of Ian Banks' closest friends, the sci-fi writer Ken MacLeod. And are Christian ethics fit for purpose? British philosopher and theologian Dr Michael Banner talks me through his latest big read, The Ethics of Everyday Life. This is a show about coming-of-age narratives, techno-utopias and a rethinking of human suffering. But first, the gap left in Scottish literature with the death of the uniquely talented and imaginative Ian Banks. Ian Banks' novels are passionate, provocative, curious and wonderfully humane. Since the publication of The Wasp Factory in 1984, a terrifying and intense work of experimental fiction, Banks' novels have consistently thrilled and challenged generations of readers. Banks' intelligent writing traversed multiple genres, and his sci-fi novels were as popular with readers as his more mainstream literary fiction. Ian's notable reads include The Bridge, The Crow Road, Complicity, The Business, The Steep Approach to Garbadale, and his final novel, The Quarry. Ian also produced the popular space opera culture series under his sci-fi writing name, Ian M. Banks, presenting readers with a fascinating, if a little disturbing, techno-utopia a futuristic society, a culture with no economic constructs. Use of weapons, the hydrogen sonata and the player of games are among some of this collection's big hits. On the 9th of June 2013, Ian Banks died of gallbladder cancer aged just 59, leaving behind a devastated and loyal fan base and a huge gap in the literary world. Well, earlier in the week, Professor Nicholas Daly from UCD School of English Drama and Film and British science fiction writer and critic Paul Kincaid joined me to celebrate the life and literary legacy of one of the most curious, entertaining and artful voices in Scottish fiction. Well, Nick kicked off our chat by explaining what makes Ian Banks one of the most original novelists of recent times and arguably one of the best. The sheer productivity of the man. 28 novels, I think, is a rough count. And, and those across a, a pretty wide variety uh, of genres, subgenres. So from his quite gothic first novel, The Wasp Factory, up to his fairly, I guess you'd say, social realist accounts of family life. Things like The Crow Road, probably, probably the best known novel of, of, of that kind. But then he, he also has a range of other 
um, genres that he uses. So something like a thriller in complicity, as Paul will tell us, an entire array of works in science fiction. And he was a deeply humane writer also and hugely curious. So I think he's broad appeal. Yes, he comes across as somebody who's genuinely intellectually curious, huge range of interests from technology to current affairs, politics. Always, I think, somebody who is interested in sort of where we are now in terms of global politics and often, you know, quite a a harsh critic of certain aspects of world affairs, particularly, I guess, American foreign policy, corporate capitalism, a few things like that. If you're very fond of those two things, you probably shouldn't read his novels. (laughs) (laughs) Would you agree with that uh, quite provocative point there from from Nick there, Paul? Absolutely. I mean, the, the two abiding intellectual thrusts in his work, I think, are his left-wing politics and his atheism. So if, if you're made uncomfortable by either of those, definitely don't read Ian Banks. And those themes really cross over between his mainstream fiction and his uh, science fiction. Absolutely. In, in many ways, I think, I think they're, they're a unity. There's a difference in the type of story he tells, but in the way he tells it, the use of language, the the ideas that lie behind it. I think they're all of a unity. Can I ask you about his breakthrough book, Nick, The Wasp Factory? It's a remarkable read. It's very gory. It features unbelievable cruelty. It's grotesque in parts, but it's compelling. It's so engaging. If you were to pick a book that is enthralling yet disgusting, that has to be it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's a hard read in some ways. But in other words, as you say, it is hugely engaging. There's great energy there. The, the writing is always lively that the central character is demented, but, you know, in quite an interesting way. So once you get past that night marish cruelty to animals is a little hard to bear actually but if you can get past that I think it, it is still a hugely enjoyable novel. Do you think he wanted to scare his readers though? It's his first novel to be published and he'd had quite a few novels before that that hadn't been picked up by publishers. I think that there may have been an ambition to, to shock his way into recognition in, in that first book. He returns to some of the same material in later books without that same shock factor so I, I think there was an ambition there to kind of make himself heard in that first book through sheer grotesqueness. And when we were talking earlier you you mentioned to me that if you were to define what he does best, one of the things he said to me was how he looks at the overall family unit and the secrets within families and how far people are willing to go to protect those secrets. That's right, yeah. He, he returns to the idea of the family quite, quite a lot and the idea of family secrets. Now, you know, obviously that, that's a that's pretty much a given in a lot of 20th century, 21st century fiction and the 19th century varieties before it. But it's it's a particular thing in, in his work where you have a central character who's maybe is slightly outside the family constellation on the edges and the narrative kind of takes us through usually his exploration of family secrets. I mean, in, in some ways, I suppose you could say you know, all family life is mysterious. Other people are mysterious. Our own motives are sometimes mysterious to us. By exploring the, that, that, that kind of idea of the family secret, I think he kind of sheds light on that, really. Uh, and it, and it, it always provides a great narrative hook as well, the idea that, that there's, there's something dark in the family closet, a skeleton of some kind lurking there. Do you think that that's what readers want, Paul? All those dirty secrets? Do they want to engage on that? type of stuff. Is that what he really tapped into? That um, family breakdown, the secrets, psychological, I, messy, emotional? I, th- I think one of the things is that in every one of his books where there's betrayal, where somebody, you know, cheat somebody else or betray somebody else. It's somebody within the family or within an extended family. I think what he wanted to do was emphasise that you can only really get betrayal like that when there's trust, when there's closeness. Uh, and so the family is the place where betrayal really happens, where where people really do 
act against you. I have no idea where that came from, however. There's, a, there's an anecdote he used to tell quite regularly that somebody came up to him at a book signing and said, you know, you, you must have had terrible family life with all the stuff that's going on in your books. And Ian pointed to a little old lady on the other side of the room and said, go and ask her. And a few moments later, he heard his mother's voice floating over the room. Ah, no, Ian was always a very happy wee child. Uh, so it's not from experience. It's not within his own family. But families are always there. Families are always the trigger for something going wrong. But that's what makes a good storyteller, that they can be that creative and resourceful and be that clever with ideas. If you look at the bridge, for example, it's a fascinating reflection on so many different values in society and so many different emotions and love and fear and all those type of things, isn't it? It's it's nothing but emotions. All the emotions are actually made real within the bridge itself. It's it's a place where people uh, are afraid and fall in love and face terrible dangers. Uh, and great mysteries. It, it's it's like every everything, every part of our imaginative life is there, encapsulated in that one place. Fascinating read. Can I ask you though, if we're looking broadly at his literary output, his science fiction, lots of people wouldn't rate his sci-fi over his more mainstream stuff. Why do you think that is? I think the people who don't rate it are the people who just tend to assume that because it's science fiction, it's not as good or as worthwhile as the other stuff. In fact, I believe that the craft he used in his science fiction was every bit as as intelligent and as skillful as the craft in his mainstream fiction. The humour was the same. The 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 depth of characterization was the same. It's it's just a matter of you've got to read it. But he uses he uses funny names, he uses, you know, strange concepts. If you're put off by things like that, it tends to be difficult to break into the fiction. Do you think the culture is aimed at the male reader? Yes. Not deliberately, but I, I think, well, from experience, I, I think it, there's an awful lot of, uh, of, of men who really believe in the culture. They, they believe it's a real place, almost. Um, there's, there's an awful lot of women who read his books as well, but uh, there does seem to be something very masculine in the way he wrote, and I don't know what that is. It's indefinable, but it's just something in the characterisation of his writing. Nick, he features a lot of young male narrators, though. If you look at The Crow Road, The Wasp Factory, even down to the bridge, some of his classic books, there are male protagonists. They're usually young. They're usually quite conflicted, angry, searching for answers, searching for the truth. It's typical male. It's what every guy dreams of reading, isn't it, really? It's certainly, I think, where he's most vivid is, is those accounts of, sort of coming-of-age narratives of various kinds featuring, as you say, kind of young, questing males, often kind of disaffected in one way or another. Either they, you know, they're complete outsiders or, or they, they're actually people who have got considerable privilege but are, are, are still unhappy. But th- to be fair, he, he, he does occasionally step outside of that and he, and he does have a number of novels with um, first-person uh, female protagonists. The Business is one, uh, Canal Dreams is another. Wheat is probably the best known of those where he, he, he adopts the voice of somebody who's a, a female member of a, of a Scottish cult. So he, he is able to step outside of that, uh, that angry young man or at least, you know, not entirely happy young man voice uh, when he wants to. He, he really is a, a genuinely a powerfully imaginative writer of that respect. The other thing to point out is when he does have a central female character, she tends to be stronger and more effective and cleverer 
than most of his male protagonists. It's as if the, the women are, are a, play a much better, stronger role in his books than the men do. And of course, the, the Wasp Factory is a funny one. Not, not wishing to spoil the plot for anyone. But. Just in terms of his political views, he was never scared of telling governments what he thought of them. He ripped up his passport. He protested against the war in Iraq. He brought Thatcher into his books. He brought Bush into his books. He brought Tony Blair into his books. Both his science fiction and more mainstream stuff. He was quite a frustrated political writer in ways. I think that's right. I mean, he doesn't really write, I suppose, political novels per se, you know, that they're not about politics in the formal sense but a lot of his own politics definitely gets into the, the novels and, and often his views are I think without being very thick disguised they're ascribed to one of his uh, protagonists so you get quite a few I mean some critics would regard them as just plain rants that that, that somehow kind of slip into the Crow Road uh, the steep road to, to Garbadale that, uh, they, they often uh, have, have protagonists who are kind of quite close to, to, to himself I think in terms of their, their, their views And I haven't read The Steep Approach to Garbadale Is it good? It is good yeah I mean it, it's a very similar narrative to The Crow Road I suppose There are family secrets there's, a, there's an outsider character I, I guess it actually has slightly more of a political subtext insofar as it's, it's about a, a family who, who make a great deal of money selling a, a, a board game and, and we kind of arrive at a point where they're about to, to sell out to a giant American corporate capital Capitalism. There's there's a, a little bit of an allegory going on there. I think about the um, place of Britain vis-a-vis the vis-a-vis America. Paul, did you meet Ian at any stage? Oh yes, I knew Ian for several years. In fact, uh, I sort of introduced him to sort of a science fiction community because I invited him to his first science fiction convention. So we 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 met a lot of times. And when you read The Quarry, how did you feel when you were reading that, knowing that this is a man that you knew in some way? He wrote this book while sick. And it's so remarkable that he writes about a man who has cancer and writes so knowingly and so well about it. Yet he himself was dying. Do you think he realised that or had some inkling? He wrote most of the book. I think he said that it was 75% of the book before he was diagnosed. So... It's actually a dreadful coincidence that the central character was dying of cancer the same way he would. Um, it's almost impossible to read. Actually, it's, it's very difficult to to read a book like that in the immediate aftermath of you know real life intruding. Do you think this happens though? We see this in a lot of books. Autobiographical stuff creeps into writers, so that in some way that they they can see things in some way or have feelings for things, or maybe it's on their radar. So that's why they're writing about it. Don't really know. Um, I mean, it, it is a, a remarkable coincidence. I think that uh, it, Paul is right that he'd, he'd already written seventy five percent of the book when when he sort of found that that that, that he was basically in his own novel at this point. But uh, he does use the idea of a, of a character with with cancer. I think much earlier on in in complicity, and I think there it kind of stands in for some idea of some sense of malaise. I suppose in in society, the diseased character stands in for, in some ways, uh, a grander, I suppose, illness in society. But but obviously, it, it, it takes much much more tragic. Um, overtones in, in the quarry. But for fans of Ian Banks, it's extraordinary. It's The coincidence is so creepy in ways. Mm. It's very sad in another way. It's all a bit much, isn't it, in one way? I think it would be very hard to, to, to read that book knowing that Banks had, had just died and, and not think about that. I think you'd have to be a, a very distanced reader indeed. You know, in, in many ways, it's quite a, quite a positive novel. Mm. I mean, it, there's mm. a lot of anger in it. There's a lot of that kind of, that, that why me voice from, mm. from, from, from Guy. But our, our central character actually is 
is his son, who is is a slightly kind of is a, a sort of a, a much milder version mm. of the character that we first met in in the, in the Wasp Factory. Mm. Somebody who's a little bit on the outside. In this case, actually appears to have some version of Asperger's mm. syndrome or something like that. But actually, is a relatively happy character mm. and quite balanced, uh, and a sort of a balance to the the anger and the hurt that we get elsewhere in the novel. Now, you were talking to me earlier, Nick, about William Boyd and Graham Greene, and you were comparing Ian Banks to those two writers. I was in the sense I think that that, that, that Green say has has two voices as well that that he he wrote novels that, that he kind of thought of as his literary novels and he wrote other ones that he also put a, a lot of energy and care into but he saw them as inverted commas as entertainments that were meant to be more, more popular. William Boyd I, I was I was thinking is there anybody quite like Ian Banks and I'm not sure there is really I, I think that the points in common with, with Boyd is they're, they're of the same generation they're born within a few, few years of each other Boyd actually in, in Ghana rather than, rather than Scotland but quite, quite a British identified writer but there's, there's the same kind of ferocious narrative energy, the same ability to conjure up plots, situations, vivid characters. That they're, they're, they're both novelists where, you know, there's never any point where you're 100 pages in and you've forgotten who's who. Mm. They're, 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 they're always able to produce vivid characters, kind of clearly differentiated. It's quite a gift. And Paul, if you were to choose between his more experimental fiction or the more mainstream stuff, which would you choose? Uh, I think the two best books he wrote were the two most experimental in terms of structure, which is uh, The Bridge and Use of Weapons. So I suppose I would say I'd go for The Experimental. But at the same time, you, you know, Crow Road is a magnificent book. I, I just love reading it. So I'm not sure that I could make the choice. Do you think the gap that he's left will ever be filled in Scottish literature? <sighs> Possibly not. But I'm not sure that Scottish literature will carry on and one of the things that Ian Banks did was actually make it popular, make it visible to an awful lot of people, to a lot of readers. Hopefully other Scottish writers will come in on that and, and maintain the, the pattern, the habit. And there's great plots, there's huge sense of risk in his books, but ultimately there's so many stings, so many surprises, Nick, isn't there? Maybe that's what his legacy is, that he was really able to wrestle with his readers and surprise them and scare them and that's what made him compulsive reading, really. Yeah, I'd agree with, with Paul, actually, that, that he made Scottish literature, not that it was unpopular before, but he, he, he brought a, a huge new audience, I think, to... Mm to literary fiction and science fiction. Mm. And th- those mystery plots that, that he uses so often, um, I mean, in some ways, they're, 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 they're kind of like MacGuffins, I suppose, in the kind of Hitchcock sense, that they're, that they're a way of, of, of bringing us through the, through the, the, the novels. But he, he is also very good at, at twists and turns. He's, you know, he's, he's somebody who, who really knows how to tell a story. And if you were to pick his top three, would The Bridge be one? It would be for me too. Uh, I, I'd agree with, with mm. Paul that it, as an experimental novel, it's, it's a great success. It's one where you, where you can see his, his science fiction world and his literary fiction world coming together and it's, it's really satisfying. I, I suppose I, I'd, I'd probably put The Crow Road on, on, on my shortlist and, and maybe just for kind of the sheer shock factor of it, I think The, the Wasp Factory will, will probably live a long time. And Paul, what would it be for you? Well, as I say, The Wasp Factory is a brilliant novel I and mean, it's, it's just so vivid. Once you've read it, you can't forget it. I love The Bridge. I think The Bridge is one of the finest novels written in English in you know, the last 30 years odd years uh, and use of weapons the structure the, the care with which he, he built that story up and then undermined everything I think is just breathtaking so that would have to be one of mine and for the female reader who feels that really Ian Banks is for men what book would you choose for them I would go maybe something like Wit or 
for Business, which both have very strong, very interesting female lead characters. And if you were to surmise what he offered to readers in three words, what would it be? Story, humour, ideas. I think they're a perfect three. McLeod. I'm a science fiction writer, author of 14 novels, of which the most recent is Descent and published by Orbit. And for a long time, since my high school years, I was a friend of Ian Banks. And according to his own wish, I've been involved in bringing out a volume of poetry by Ian Banks, along with some of mine. It's titled Poems and it's published by Little Brown. Ian and I both wrote poetry from high school onwards, although Ian stopped in 1981. And sometime before he had any idea that he was ill, late in 2012, I think it was, he mentioned to me that he had this idea of getting his poetry published along with some of mine. And I tried to persuade him that his poetry stood very well on its own, and he wasn't having any of it. So we agreed that we would do this, and it was sort of put on the back burner as far as I was concerned, and then a few days later, a typescript of Ian's collected poems, carefully selected, appeared in my email inbox. And I went through my own poems, some of which have been published in various venues, and some of which have never seen the light of day for many, many years, and then not long after that, in fact, Ian got the basically terminal diagnosis. And he had two, that apart from, you know, really uh, completing various things that he wanted to do in life and enjoying what he had left as much as possible, he was very keen to finish the novel he was working on, which he did, to plan out a new science fiction novel, a culture novel, which he didn't, and to answer all the kind messages that he'd got, which proved simply impossible because there were so many, and also to get this book of poems on its way. And that he did, although most of the work of editing it and so on was something that was done by myself and by his widow Adele after his death. And we found his final amendments written on a printout and incorporated these in. And beyond that, there was not a lot for us to do. As a poet, as compared to a writer, what do you think are the differences in terms of the voice? Are we getting a more emotional, a more philosophical, if you could be more philosophical than Ian Banks was as a writer? I think what we're getting is a more intimate side of Ian. His books certainly communicated a personal voice in in very different ways. And he incorporated some of the poems into some of his books. For example, his first science fiction novel that he wrote, although not the first that was published, Use of Weapons, begins and ends with poems, and these were taken from his own poems. I think he wrote them either as a spin-off or separately from the book. And he incorporated some of a long, long narrative poem, both in the text of his novel, A Song of Stone, and extracts from it appeared as found documents, as it were, in his very successful 
novel of a coming of age in a way called The Crow Road, where they appear as documents left by the mysteriously disappeared Uncle Rory. So we've seen Savian as a poet before, and I think in the poems you see pretty much, as I said, I think in The Guardian perhaps, there is a lot that is familiar. The outlook and the way in which he enjoys playing with language and so on is very much, very much what we've come to expect. I think Ian brought the same worldview, a worldview informed by science and philosophy to his literary fiction and to his science fiction. And it's remarkable when you say there that he wanted to have your name on it with him to share the load, so to speak, considering how what a successful writer that he was, that he was somewhat anxious or nervous of his capabilities as a poet when well, he'd had all this extraordinary success. He took his poetry seriously and he had uh, he thought it was pretty good. And I think he was right, actually. No, the reason he wanted mine to be included was that he felt that he and I had in some ways influenced and affected each other over the years. And you can see echoes of the one in the other or traces of the one in the other. So you were responding to each other in some way, was that it? In some ways, yes. Not just in terms of the poetry, but in terms of the fact that we talked a lot. We discussed each other's writing, certainly a lot at the beginning. And usually we, in the case of poems, we showed them to each other over the years. So I think I had already read all of Ian's poems, and he had certainly read nearly all of mine. Um, While I was putting together the collection, you know, Ian made his own selection and I made mine, I noticed, in fact, well, after it, I'm still finding little echoes and traces of mutual influence, if you like. So I think there is an artistic validity as well as, you know, it was his personal wish that they are published together. And that was Professor Nicholas Daly from UCD's School of English Drama and Film, British science fiction writer and critic Paul Kincaid and Ken MacLeod. Poems by Ian Banks and Ken MacLeod is published by Little Brown and retails at about €13 in paperback. Paul's book, What It Is We Do When We Read Science Fiction, is published by Beacon Publications and retails at about €20 in paperback. Okay, coming up next, our Christian ethics relevant to the way we live, love and die. Talking Books on Newstalk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on Newstalk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company. OK, let's press on and move into a very thought-provoking and challenging space. The purpose of Christian theology to the ethics of everyday life. What is the meaning of human life? Why do we have children and what do we raise them for? These and many more moral conundrums are tackled by philosopher and theologian Dr Michael Banner in his latest book, The Ethics of Everyday Life, Moral Theology, Social Anthropology and the Imagination of the Human. In The Ethics of Everyday Life, Michael Banner writes that moral theology must reconceive its nature and tasks if it is not only to articulate its own account of human beings, but also to enter into a constructive contention with other accounts. Michael says the purpose of his book is to encourage the development of moral theology's very own everyday ethics, that is, to characterise it not as an ethics of hard cases, but of the life course. Dr Michael Banner has been Dean of Chapel and a Fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge, since 2006. 
His books include The Justification of Science and the Rationality of Religious Belief, Christian Ethics and Contemporary Moral Problems, and Christian Ethics, A Brief History. Michael is currently a member of the Ministry of Defence Advisory Committee on Less Lethal Weapons, and he has a particular interest in ethical investment and good business, having served eight years on the advisory board for FNC Asset Management in the City of London. Well, just before the Easter break, I got the opportunity to talk with Michael from his home in Cambridge. I asked him, has philosophy forgotten about the ordinariness of everyday ethics? Let's take a listen. I mean, I think it has. And the motivation I had for writing the book uh, that we're talking about, The Ethics of Everyday Life, was actually um, a rose out of a scandal in England. Some of your listeners will know about Alderhay scandal, when children's body parts were taken at post-mortem and not returned to their parents. It's a long and involved scandal. I could talk about it. But what interested me about that was um, very few people came forward at the time to defend the parents' interest, concern to have their children's body parts returned when they discovered that they'd been retained um, for post-mortem. And I thought that was a sign of a fact that we've forgotten what ethics is about. So we spend a lot of time in ethics talking about, on ethics courses in universities, about dropping a bomb on Hiroshima, for example, whether you should or you shouldn't. But the everyday stuff that makes our lives, everyday stuff like whether we have children and why we have children, what we think children are for, um, how we cope with suffering, how we respond to suffering in others. And this issue I've just been talking about, how we mourn the dead appropriately. These are the stuff that makes our lives moral or not moral when we look back on them. And philosophy, a lot of philosophy is just not talking about those issues. And Michael, it's in the kind of the real life, the daily gritty stuff that we can have challenges about doing the right thing. Sometimes it's very difficult to do the right thing, isn't it? Well, I think it is. And um, that's one of the reasons why we do often focus on the really difficult cases. But I think it's quite important actually to focus on the places, not where we find things difficult, but in a way we've forgotten how to speak about things we do quite well. I mean, I think parents, if I go back to my parents at Alderhey, they knew what it was to mourn their children properly. And it was actually the hospital administrators and the people who got between them and their children who were the people who were confused. So I think sometimes ordinary people have a more intuitive sense and a good sense of what is required ethically than do a lot of people teaching ethics courses. Now, Michael, some people would say that Christian ethics is not fit for purpose. (laughs) Uh, I would say that, uh, of course, uh, you know, in Ireland and other places, there have been scandals that involve the church, and that's shameful and shocking. But if you ask me, does Christianity have something still to contribute, and has it contributed to our culture, I would say yes, it has. And if I take one place where it has contributed and continues to contribute, um, I think uh, Christianity has contributed a compassionate concern, say, for the poor and the suffering, which is historically and culturally our heritage. And it's important that that goes on uh, sounding. And we're about to have an election in the, U- in the UK, and I want to see represented in, in politics concern for those who are needy, those who are without, those who are excluded. And that is actually part of a Christian heritage. So how does a Christ-centred ethos allow us to live well then? Um, I think uh, what, uh, if you think of theology as not what's just done in books that are taught in universities, but if you think about the whole of theological life and thinking, which is expressed in art, it's expressed in prayers, it's expressed in music. What that whole tradition is about is about what it is to live well humanly. A lot of uh, focus has been on Christ and Christ's life, and that's a profound meditation over 2,000 years on what human life is lived well. 
And so I think Christianity has a huge amount to contribute to our thinking about human well-being. Just take compassion. There's a story that you can tell. The word compassion uh, was invented by Christians. Uh, it doesn't exist in Latin in that form. It's invented by Christians, and it described uh, a way of sympathizing and being concerned for others, which seems historically quite new in its context. And it's why the Christians posed, as they did very early on, they weren't the only people to do it, but there were people who did it consistently, opposed the games. We all know about the uh, arenas and the Colosseum and all those sort of games that went on in Rome. Christians, uh, for, for their own reasons, pose those very quickly and early and consistently. And I think that's the sort of, that is still part of our heritage and it's an important part of our heritage and one we ought not to forget. So where would compassion then meet euthanasia in a Christian framework? <laughs> we could talk about that quite a lot. I think um, one of the things that concerns me in the book and I discuss it is I do think that people who promote euthanasia, very generally in my experience, of course, do so from a concern a compassionate concern for the suffering of the dying. I actually, in the book, want to place that discussion in a much wider context. My concern is that uh, euthanasia, once it was introduced, as, as an argument sometimes for being introduced in the UK, um, it would actually pose a risk to some of the weakest and most powerless people in our community. The characteristic person, the most characteristic dying person in the UK at the moment, is probably true of Ireland, is the most typical dying person who's uh, vulnerable, is, would be an old, uh, an elderly woman, uh, a widow, um, geriatric, on a ward in a hospital in England. That's the sort of person, I think, who needs to be protected. And it's not clear to me that those who advocate euthanasia um, actually put in place the sort of checks and balances that would be needed to ensure that such a woman weren't vulnerable to being being killed against her wishes. So in some way then have we failed to understand suffering? I think we fail to see that suffering is not just an individual thing. It's not thing, and for kids with the euthanasia, it's not something that happens at the end of our lives. I mean, just take another angle on euthanasia. It, is, it, is, it would be easy just to say, I think it'd be quite easy to say, well, hold on, let's say, I don't know, 51%, 52%, whatever it is, 53% of old people say they are interested in euthanasia. I suppose I'd want us to stop and ask the question and say, how come we've produced a society in which old people want to escape from being old? We could actually stop and examine that and wonder whether the suffering of the elderly, their social isolation, which I think is very extreme in the UK, uh, their social isolation is a form of suffering which we've neglected. We focus, and quite rightly, on the suffering of those in their last few weeks. But what about the suffering of isolated old people over the years in which loneliness in the UK is one of their major afflictions? So then is society to blame and not just the individual, that we have to almost rethink how we live and how we love and how we support? I think, I think we do. I mean, I think um, uh, Ireland's a different society from Britain, but I, uh, Britain is an increasingly sort of atomistic, individualistic society where people don't know their neighbours. And the suffering, the human suffering that's resulted from that, I think is is uh, considerable. We've, we've got a loss of society, a loss of solidarity. And we do need to find new ways, I think, of um, inventing it. Most of us will not die um, from cancer or we will not die uh, suddenly from a heart attack. Most of us will, we know, will dwindle to death uh, with increasing debility. And what we've created is a society where such people, old people living on their own, socially isolated, experience enormous uh, loneliness and suffering. And we do need to think better and be better at that. It's something we'll all go through. Even selfishly, we ought to be thinking better about it than we are. You write a lot about the meaning of having children and the questions mm. that we should ask ourselves when we go into parenthood. Yeah. Can you give me some examples and where are we going wrong or where do you think we're going wrong? I find, um, again, we get back to where we started. We're talking about ordinary ethics, everyday stuff. I think if, if I've got students, if I meet students, they're coming 
coming to be interviewed. They want a place in university here, and uh, they've done some ethics somewhere. And they're very ready to talk to you about abortion. They're very ready to talk to you about in vitro fertilization. So they can talk about, to take those two examples, they can talk about ways of getting pregnant that are acceptable or not as they see, as they see. talk about ways of becoming unpregnant. But if you ask them, why might you have children at all? What's the point of children? What are children for? What are we doing with them? They often have nothing to say. And I think there's a sort of curious in our society, in British society, a curious inability to be articulate about uh, what children are for and um, uh, why we raise them. You know, we know we have a crisis in a way in the UK over children, how they're treated. And I think the two are connected. I mean, I think we need to be more conscious about uh, children, why we're raising them, what we're raising them for. Christianity, I mean, I'm a Christian moralist. I speak from the Christian tradition. The Christian tradition in baptism and in godparenthood has a very clear account of what uh, children are for and why we raise them. And do you think we're seeing a renewal in Christian theology despite all the complexities of the recent past? Do you think that we're seeing a greater relevance or a greater role for Christianity and certainly maybe Christian dogma in the last few years? Um, I think uh, John Paul II was a very remarkable uh, figure who had a very wide cultural reach. The present Pope is reaching out in new ways in the Roman Catholic Church. So I hope uh, we do see that that influence. One of the areas that interests me is, uh, which I haven't covered in this book, is actually in, in business ethics and in um, social responsibility in, in the conduct of businesses. And that's a huge area where I think uh, Christianity has had a voice and it hasn't been sufficiently heard. Now, Michael, one thing I was very interested to read about you is that you advise the government and certainly a lot of boards in London on ethical investment and good business practices. How does somebody like you, a moral philosopher, a theologian, advise people like them? What I've been involved in is uh, in a company, um, F&C Asset Management, who are very interested, have been interested in developing ethical investment portfolios. So the job I've done with some other people, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, the President of Archbishop of Canterbury, is with advising them on what sort of standards they should look for in companies they choose to invest in. So, for example, we've been very concerned to find companies that have good environmental records, which have good labour rights records, um, that don't do put their profits offshore so they don't pay tax. So what we've been involved in is trying to invest in companies where you could say you'd be glad to see your money there because those companies are doing good in the world. But a lot of that is about social responsibility you know, but it's a lot of talk half the time and not much action. So I think that's the trick. I mean I think you can't, uh, just because something comes in a green box it doesn't mean it's green so I think you've got to have expertise and advice when you're thinking of investing and when you're trying to sort out the good good companies from the bad companies. But there are companies that are doing better than others. And I think uh, most of us, you and I, uh, most of your listeners will have money uh, in pension pots, for example, uh, will have money invested in different ways. Professional people will, other people will. And um, I think it's important that we ask the people who are investing our money, are they investing in companies we would like to see doing well, companies that are responsible environmentally and uh, socially. Uh, in the UK, again, we've had, you know, we've had issues over the last five years with companies that have, that have been employing uh, child labour in a place like Bangladesh, producing very cheap clothes. You know, I think we've got to make distinctions and, and uh, identify those companies which have a proper responsibility and attitude towards, towards labour supply standards uh, than do others who are just blasé and take the cheapest goods they can find. And Michael, you know, standards in the workplace doesn't necessarily mean it has to go as far as South or Central America. We also have lots of everyday, very kind of standard or how should I put it, very 
basic everyday ethical or moral dilemmas in the workplace in terms of how we treat our fellow staff or team members, whistleblowers, yeah. how yeah. we report or not. The very some very down to some very basic messing in the workplace. So you could talk about basic things in the workplace, but of course the other thing to say is that a lot of the scandals in and this is very interesting, a lot of the scandals in banking in the last five years have not about people doing they're not not people making wrong judgments, they're people knowingly doing bad things, things that they really shouldn't have done. So we do need a new culture in business, particularly in banking and investment. The sort of principle that I heard someone say, you know, would you sell this product to your grandmother? And if you wouldn't, you shouldn't sell it to anyone else either. But it's true. We need, um, this isn't just an issue about what goes on in the third world. It's an issue about what goes on in the city of London. And if we're all honest uh, to ourselves on any day of the week, we sometimes skirt the very obvious stuff hitting us in the face, you know, staring us in the face but somehow it's a little inconvenient or you don't have the time to do the right thing or maybe it's you're kind of overthinking things so much that you just don't act. Uh, that's absolutely right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, ethics is hard. It's costly and doing the right things often costs us money and, you know, we're not, we're not all saints by any means. Uh, one of the things about the Christian tradition is it has inspired people and it does continue to inspire people to do better and that's an important thing. So the story of Christ is relevant, basically, is what you're trying to say. <laughs> Um, I think it's relevant in all sorts of ways and we could talk about, you know, we talk about all sorts of ways and uh, Christ's life was a human life and uh, we recount when we tell the story of Christ that he was conceived, born, suffered, died and buried, which we all do. And the way in which he was conceived, born, suffered, died and buried, I think has uh, things to teach us in our contemporary moral dilemmas. So really, Michael, what you're putting out there is then that it all comes down to imitating Christ, really, does it? I, I think that there's a huge tradition of reflecting on the life of Christ and it's expressed not only in boring theology books, but it's expressed in art and music and literature and poems and prayers, great cultural resources. Go to, you know, go to the National Gallery in Dublin, you'll see great um, uh, religious pictures. That meditation on Christ and his life provides us with um, models for reflection and thought which address even very contemporary dilemmas around death, dying, childbirth, suffering, all the things that we'll go through in our lives. And those unconscious moral codes then are possibly not so unconscious? They may be unconscious with where they've come from, but I think, yeah, there's a story to tell about where they did come from. And we can always, I think, understand, particularly when we're faced with difficult moments in our lives, we can always understand those codes and traditions better and, and gain from doing so. Lastly, waking up tomorrow morning, it's a fresh day for everybody. What would you advise those listening to do when they're faced with decisions they're not the you know the hard cases as you would define them as but some of the uncomfortable awkward moments in life where they have to make a tough decision nonetheless how would you advise them to go about it or how would you advise them to discern in some way the best approach Uh, as a general piece of advice I'm not sure what I'd say to anyone other than there are very few decisions that you have to take instantly and if your decision doesn't have to be taken instantly allowing yourself to Uh, reflect on it, but also to discuss it with someone uh, who you trust and value. We often, decisions are difficult, we often be quite private about it, but in fact there's a lot of um, wisdom and honesty to be gained by um, discussing decisions with people you respect. So think, slow down, and then slow down further. Something like that would be good, I think. Who? Mm-hmm.
And that was philosopher and theologian Dr. Michael Banner from Trinity College, Cambridge. The Ethics of Everyday Life is published by Cambridge University Press and retails at about €25 in hardback. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. The music today comes from Brian Eno and The Gloaming. Okay, before I go, I just want to mention a very noble cause. Des Kenny of Kenny's Books is running a second-hand book sale in aid of the Galway Hospice. The book sale is taking place in Galway on the 18th of April. And for more information, all you have to do is go to www.kenny's.ie. Okay, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Brunock, who helped out with this week's show, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy and Paddy Dunhu on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end this week's show with some powerful words from the great Ian Banks from his breakthrough book, The Wasp Factory. All our lives are symbols. Everything we do is part of a pattern we have at least some say in. The strong make their own patterns and influence other people's. The weak have their courses mapped out for them. The weak, the unlucky and the stupid. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. 
to download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.